0: Hey, thanks for coming, guys. Small that we are. Um, interesting day. I'm glad I had my brother Chris with me. Um, on my way to the dentist, I had a flat tire. Literally, just heading north. There's like a funny sound in the right corner. I'm going, okay, that doesn't sound good. I better pull over and check it out. Usually, I drive for about a few miles before I figure it out, thinking, ah, it'll fix itself. Never true. You hear a funny sound, pull over and get it checked out. So I had a flat tire, and I'm supposed to be at two o'clock, and they give you this big. Notification that if you don't show up for your dental appointment, they're going to charge you money because they don't like it. And so I'm like, call Chris. He came. We made it there with one minute to spare. And so I even called and thought, no, probably going to be late, but we weren't, praise God, even though I didn't give him the right directions and we took a little bit of a detour. Uh, but God is so gracious. So we're going to be talking today on 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've already gone through the first nine chapters, and especially on chapters eight and nine, we're talking a lot about the liberty, the freedom we have in Christ. Again, Paul is trying to address the concerns raised by the church. So the church, or the one who reached out to them saying, hey, how do we deal with this? What do we do here? And Paul's saying, okay, these are some of the things I want you to be aware of. And in chapter nine, he talked about some of the freedoms you have in Christ, and he expands it further now in chapter 10 by going back and talking about what happened with the Israelites when they left Egypt. And in verse 1 and 2, he said, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So there's a few points I want to bring up here. The first is, notice how many times he says all. He says it five times, okay? He's not saying a few have this. Every single one of the Israelites, okay, and the estimates were at 2 million men and upwards to 5 million people as a whole were there, okay? All of them were under the cloud. Now, when we talk about that, you may remember when you've read in Exodus about the cloud, and if you've seen the Ten Commandments, you think of a sense of a cloud. This is important. This was a cloud of mercy. This was a cloud that God provided to cover them from the intense heat that was in the Middle East. So they're covered. The whole nation was covered in this cloud that sheltered them from the heat during the day. But as in the desert, it can get cold and dark, dark and cold quickly at night. So in his same mercy, he provides a pillar of fire, both to light their way and also give them a heat source. Whenever the cloud moved, they moved. Okay? It's like, do I want to be in the heat or do I want to be over there in the cool? I'll go with the coolest. Okay? How do you move five million people? You know, it's not easy. Okay? They did that. They moved. God merciful, mercifully did that. And at night, he guided them the same thing the fire where the heat source was, you moved with the fire. Okay? But they also say the cloud was another mercy. And the other mercy that it was, it was a form of protection. You see this huge pillar of a cloud and you see this thing moving, it kept the enemies away. You see this huge pillar of fire you knew there was something supernatural going on here. This was not something that just kind of happened. God provided supernatural protection. And he did that, not for the normal 40-some days it would have taken for them to get to Egypt, to Israel, but for 40 years. 40 years. And the reason it's 40 years, we're going to touch base on, because of rebellion. 40 years, he provided protection and favor. 40 years, he kept them fed. 40 years, he fold them. You and I, most of us, have a huge wardrobe. Lots of clothes. I have too many, okay? Mainly I keep the smaller ones because I keep thinking I'm going to shrink back down to the (laughs) I need to get rid of it. Not there yet. But we keep the point is we have lots of clothes and stuff. They had the same outfit for 40 years. Wearing the same shoes for 40 years. That truly is a miracle. We don't, it's even hard to grasp that every day. Now, if you have a chance, like Brian and I did when we went to Ghana, when you go to other countries, they don't have very many clothes. They may have two, three outfits, total, total. One of them's a nice outfit they wear at church, and the other one's kind of a dirty outfit they work in, and the other one's kind of a semi-outfit. Really not a lot. I've seen the kids there. They're wearing the same clothes over and over again. Okay, so why am I saying those things? I'm saying... The Israelites were blessed. And Paul is telling the Corinthian church how blessed that they are. So he mentioned about all of them, all of the blessings they had, whereas they were all in the, the cloud. He also talked about all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. Why did he use the term baptized? Because the Old Testament, okay has all the elements of the New Testament in it. The New Testament explains everything of the Old, and the Old contains all the elements of the New. Okay? And he's showing everything when you read That's why when you read the Old Testament, you read it through the lens of understanding God's grace, His mercy, and His provision to Christ. When we're sharing in, to Jews about Jesus, we're looking through that same lens when we look through Isaiah in, in chapter 53, and we talk about the wounded Savior. We talk about somebody who was wounded for our transgression. The same principle applies. And so all these Israelites went through the Red Sea, or Sea of Reeds, okay, and it was a form of baptism. They came out new at the other end. Now most of us, our image is we think of this one massive parting of the water as they're going through. Some of the stuff that I've read said more likely, and the Hebrew perspective at that time, is there were 12, 12 partings. One for each tribe. There's five million people going through there. It needs to be a pretty big opening. It's, there were maybe 12. The point is, every single person walked through. Every single person received the blessing of the Lord. Every single person, when you go through it and you see this, you realize that this is something the Lord's grace and his provision provided. Okay? And what Paul's trying to let them know is. They had spiritual blessings back then. You have spiritual blessings back now. We have that baptism in Christ. And he wants to continually focus, as the Israelites had, that we need to, to remember where we came from. Remember what God has done for us. Okay? In Scripture, where we talk about, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Okay? God's mercies are new each day. It is an ongoing relationship, an ongoing process. Okay, there is a moment, no question about it, but the point is what God's asking us that each and every day, when we spend our quiet time, when we press into the Lord, he's asking us for that continual surrender, that continual gratitude going, ah, thank you, Jesus, for saving me today. Let me live for you today, for what you've done. And so as Paul's sharing with the Corinthian church, he's emphasizing the same point. And he, he says even further, they ate the same spiritual food and drank... The same spiritual drink, and so the Corinthian church the same thing. They were given the same thing of Christ. They were taught the essential core teachings. Okay, it's not like they were unaware. Come on in. Come on in. You got a moment? Go ahead. Come forward. Come on forward, Jason. Okay. So the other point they talk about, they drank from the sp- same spiritual rock. Now, you, many of you know about the rock in the Old Testament, especially the part where Moses you know, was instructed to speak to the rock, and the water would come forth. Okay. Instead, in his anger and frustration with the murmuring and the grumbling of the Israelites, he smacks it. Okay? He was act of rebellion. Moses was with God. He's the only one who had the Shekinah glory upon him, except for obviously Jesus, but the only human in that sense who had that close of an intimacy with the Lord. The one where God said, there's nobody more humble than Moses. Okay. He was given a great measure of mercy, and he hit the rock. That same rock, though, was the water, was a representation of the provision. But it talks about here that rock was Christ. Many of the Hebrew scholars, many of the, in the rabbinic tradition, believe that that rock materialized everywhere they wanted, needed water. That it literally followed them. That God provided a rock in a desert where there was no water so they could speak to the rock and a rock would give water. Okay? You would think the ground would give water. Maybe there's an under water reservoir, but you wouldn't expect water from a rock. That's the last place you would think you would get water from. Okay, the desert's all sand. There may be a few rocks there that haven't been broken up by the wind beating the sand against the rocks, but a rock materialized by God showing his continual daily provision. As he provided the Israelites of old, Paul is telling them he's providing the the church at Corinth then, And he does to us today. Every day he provides. So, I'm emphasizing again, and then the the last part here, that last line, go to the next page. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. God has shown his mercy over and over again to these people. His daily mercy with the cloud cover and the pillar of fire, with the provision of water, the huge miracles when they walked through the Red Sea, him guiding and destroying the the army with the pharaohs, the manna from heaven that came every day to provide food. Like he's saying, I'm going to take care of you and I'm here to provide for you. They did not honor God. And because they dishonored him by their grumbling, by their rebellion, okay, and he talks more than that, they were scattered in the wilderness. Paul lets them know, Paul lets the Corinthian church know much the same thing, that our degree, their degree of obedience of what they do, will either get the blessing of the Lord or the consequences of God. And the reason he's mentioning it to the Corinthian church, as we talked earlier, is they were taking so much liberality with God's grace. They took it for granted. What we um, they talk over and over, and we, we, we touch base on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where the man was with his father's wife, okay? They were thinking it's okay to be with the temple prostitutes because, hey, I'm going to church. So what I do from Monday to Friday doesn't matter because Sunday morning I'm still here at church. Okay? And he's going to emphasize this, this, this adultery of the heart, this divided loyalty. Okay, God does not tolerate. God does not tolerate within the Corinthian church a divided loyalty. If he doesn't tolerate it then, he certainly does not tolerate it now. And the opportunity for us to see and identify with the first Corinthian church is how often our loyalties are divided. How much we want to choose things of the world thinking because I come to church, because I go to a believing church, because I've gone to Pure Life Ministries and Dead Care, because I even spend a quiet time, that it's okay. It's not okay. Okay? It's not okay. Okay, we have to... Okay. We have to make a choice. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're arrived. But it's not okay. Okay? The okay part is to be like Jesus. That's the only okay there is. The more and more we're like Jesus, the more okay we are. The less we're like Jesus, the less okay we are. Now, God's mercy is good. Just as he was merciful with the Israelites, he's merciful to us. Okay, He's not holding us under condemnation because we're not under condemnation for you when you're in Christ Jesus. But it's not okay. Okay, he forgives it. Okay, We can go to him, we can repent, and he'll forgive us every day he has It seems like a limitless supply of forgiveness for us, certainly limitless supply of compassion, of mercy that we can't imagine, the storehouses he has for us. But when he talks about in the word again what is okay, he wants us to walk the path that shows that we're glorifying him. And so as he's talking to the first Corinthian church, Paul is saying the same thing. Yes, you have freedom with Christ. Yes, you're allowed to do so many things. And he says later, okay, all things permitted, but not all is beneficial. If you're going to remember something from this chapter, that's probably one of the major lines to remember. All things are permitted, but not everything is beneficial. And the metric, the standard to determine what's beneficial is, first and foremost, does it glorify God? And second, is it a blessing for those around me? Not just, is it good for me? I talk to people all the time, and, you know, they're always interested in, hey, how does this work for me? How is this better my opportunities? How is it better what I want? And we all have that flesh, because we're all seeking what we want. I want this. I want that. And the Lord says, I mean, Jesus, whole, his whole life was, restraining and restricting his wants. God of the universe who says to Pilate, I can call 20 legions of angels. You're not taking my life. I laid it down. I laid it down. That's the example he wants. I laid it down. So, Verses 6 to 10, it talks about avoiding Israel's bad example. Now these things became our examples to the extent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. So Paul hits them with a lot of stuff, referring a lot back in the book of Numbers and Exodus. Okay, in Exodus 32, verses 1 to 6, and Numbers 25 to 1 to 3, God talks at length about how the Israelites gave themselves to idolatry. And Paul was admonishing the First Corinthian Church that you can be chasing after the same thing. It's the same thing that we do. We can chase after the idol of security, of self-sufficiency, of self, of materialism, of success. Yes. Certainly. Exodus 32, 1-6. Numbers 25, 1-3. In that expression, he talks about that. It says, rose up to play. That's a euphemism for them going into revelry. And it's like an orgy. In the worst sense of the word. Okay? And you may have seen that from Ten Commandments, where they were kind of going kind of crazy when Moses was up on the mountain. It was like that. Multiple fold. Okay? It was gross sin. And... As I've shared before, at the Corinthian church, there were tons of temple prostitutes. It was a major thoroughfare. There was gross sin. And it's what's happening now. It's why most of us went through pure life, because we were in gross sin, chasing after self, most of us in sexual immorality. So he also mentions in... Um, uh, there's different aspects, and, you know, people talk about, and I'm going to just elaborate about 23,000, where did that number come from? Um, there's one passage where 3,000 men, and some say there's uncounted were women. There's another passage where 22,000 died, uh, or 24,000 died uh, total from judgment against the Lord in the Old Testament, but this is 23,000 one day. The reason I mention those things are I don't want you to be caught up with the details of the numbers. Okay, there's different ways to explain it that makes complete sense. The attention and the focus needs to be on these are judgments that the God has. Okay, people look through that, and if you have a chance to go through the scripture, going, okay, these numbers don't jive. Well, it's an understanding of what it means by how many died total versus how many died that day, and the distinction between how many died total versus how many men died. So sometimes there are gender distinctions distinctions. okay? Um, I mentioned only because there seemed to be a lot of discussion about that and complaint and that might be somebody who questions the word, questions the consistency of scripture will bring up. The other aspect is look to numbers chapter 21 verses four to nine, where God sent fiery serpents among the people. on in. The whole principle, all through the Israelites, is they were having complaining, complaining hearts. We talked over and over, and if you've listened to one of the messages in Pure Life, I talked about grumbling and complaining series. I had that when I went through. The critical spirit, if we're always judging and thinking, and you know, those of us who see things, some of us think, hey, I know how to do things better. Who's ever had a critical spirit? Yeah. All of us. God condemned them with fiery serpents because of a critical spirit, because of that complaining of not trusting the Lord. How much more judgment should we be when we don't trust God? We're not because we operate under grace. Praise God. Okay? We're not because there's no condemnation. Praise God. The point of saying is not that I want you to feel bad about yourself, I want you to understand how good God's grace is that he does it, but to let you know, hey, this is what God says. This is what he wants of us. Jesus didn't complain and grumble. When he had a bunch of 12 people, 12 guys he invested in, when they betray him on the night and he invested his whole life, anybody had a right to complain and grumble, it would be Jesus. He did not complain and grumble. We have to watch that within our spirits. When I get tired when I'm frustrated things don't get work at work, there's that spirit that comes up that wants to complain and grumble. Why can't they do their job? Why are they doing this? Come on! I'm doing the best that I can. Right? I'm doing my part. Who of us doesn't have that spirit? I do. So easy to point the finger at others and accuse them, especially those in positions of leadership over us. Well, why don't they help? I hear it all the time. Well, they just sit around and make decisions. They don't help us. We're in the trenches doing the work. Like the guys in the army complained about the generals. Okay? The principle is we don't know all the things that are going on. We don't understand the whole picture. We can just see the trees in front of us and don't have that perspective. But more importantly, it's the same thing with God. God's orchestrating everything. Nothing is happening by accident by God. I'm not here in front of you by accident. You're not here sitting down by accident. It's not God going, oh, I didn't anticipate that. That wasn't in the plan, so we're going to have to make some quick adjustments. Let's get some more food out here. Let's get ready. It doesn't happen with God. Okay? Not everything is specifically detailed or prescribed that God's saying it's going to be, because God's gracious on that, but nothing happens as a surprise to God. Let me say that again. Nothing happens as a surprise to God. He consistently knows every single possibility, every permutation, every conceivable way. Everything. And he's that good. If we can grasp that he knows everything and he is that good, then we can walk in that, trusting that, not depending on what we see but depending on faith with him that he'll provide the way. That will give us the greatest freedom and joy. That will give us the greatest freedom and joy because it will be our driving motivator to help us to walk to what he wants us to do. So he elaborates further, and we're going to move on to the next verses in 11 to 13. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who stands... let say, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And a verse that everybody went through pure life remembers. No temptation has overtaken you except such is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Look what I just shared. I said God knows every permutation and possibility. He knows it all and he's good. So when we're tempted, that's not a surprise to God. And when we're overwhelmed with that temptation, our first inclination is, why are you letting me go through this? Where are you, God? How come I have to deal with this? I can't stand this. It's not fair. And what the Word says in the midst of that moment, there is a way out. Now, I love what I'm reading in Scriptures. That way out may not be an easy path. We want the easy path. I want that quick thing. I can just exit right out the side door and not have to worry about that. Okay, in, in, the, in that time when they talked about the easy way out, it may be a mountain pass. Okay, if you look most, like what surrounding armories, they may have a way out. They're surrounded from all sides except the one pass where they have to climb a 16,000-foot peak to get through. But God knows you can climb the 16,000 feet. And God knows you can make it through. Why does he know that? Because he knows all things. Why does he want us to go through that? Because he wants to make us more like Christ. He scourges every son he receives. So the way out, that temptation that God permitted is because he wants us to become stronger. Like that African proverb, make their back stronger to bear through trial. We in our culture thinks that we shouldn't have suffering. We want comfort. God is our comfort but our situation is not. And if our situation gets too comfortable, he's probably going to upset the apple cart. Why? Because we can become more dependent on him. Why? Because we can realize that when we're comfortable, we, we don't want to pursue Jesus. I know when I'm comfortable and things are going my way, I'm less inclined to pursue God. It's in the trials that I've gone through that... Have made me chase after Jesus. I wish it was just enjoying. I can now enjoy as well, but I know sometimes it's been in the greatest trials that I've had the greatest breakthroughs. It's in that great suffering that he wants. So in that trial, God knows just like he did with Job, just like he did with Moses, just like he did with Elijah, just like he did with with Joseph, with Jacob all through the Old Testament, trial upon trial upon trial. Because he wanted them to press into him. To depend upon him. To think about him, of what he wants. Instead of, this is what I want, this is what I think, and I want God to bless it. There's an opportunity for us to go, okay God, what do you want? Your will, not my will. What do you want? What does that look like? I don't know. I really want to do what you want because I really know that's the best for me. And it is. It is the best for us. What he wants is the best for us. How do we remember that moment by moment and actually put it into practice? Oh, I love what it says here. The way of escape may not lead us to a place where we escape all temptation. Where are we going to escape all temptation? Heaven. Right. Heaven. No other place. Heaven. Okay. The only place we'll escape temptation is in heaven. Okay. So, but it may lead to a place where we'll be able to bear the temptation. Okay. So that's the opportunity. So, Being tempted isn't sinful. Entertaining the temptation and surrendering to it is. Like I say, the birds may fly over, temptation may fly over. Just don't let it nest. Now, you have to realize, we also have an adversary. There's an enemy. Our flesh is a problem, the world's a problem, we also have an enemy. An enemy will condemn us and say... You were tempted. What kind of Christian are you? You were tempted. Okay? Then we speak God's word of truth. There's no condemnation. Being the tempted isn't the part. Okay? We, all, we don't even answer that. I love this, this saying, and I've shared it with a few of the guys. At a market, a little boy standing by some candy looked like he was going to put some in his pocket and walk out the door. A clerk watched the boy for a long time and finally spoke to him. Looks like you're trying to take some candy, the clerk said. The re- boy replied, you're wrong, mister. I'm trying not to. <laughs> okay? For the time being, he was able to bear it. Okay? And I've been, I remember as a kid. There's something I didn't have enough money for the candy, and I wanted the candy. Okay? Candy jars, we used to have candy shops which had them and, you know, Double bubble, and you had the long five-cent-one gums and all that, and I didn't have enough money. So, resisting temptation, going, okay, I won't do that. The idea is God wants it to be something internal, not just because I'm going to get punished. Sometimes we don't do it because I don't want to get the punishment. I don't want the law to get me. I don't want to go to prison. God wants to say, I want that to change in the heart where you don't want to. So he's cultivating that within us. So, we're going to move back to that, the part before about Eating meat, it says here. And another, there's like, we talked about no temptation. We talked about freedom in Christ. About there's one here. It says, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Doesn't say, yes, don't do it. Just step away. It says, run away. As hard as you can, as fast as you can, get away from it. Get away from it entirely. So, at that time, he's referring to the pagan temples. I'm giving you a little bit more context there. We talked before about the meat of the temples. So, Corinth being a major thoroughfare, there were tons of pagan temples. He's already told them, hey, don't hang with the prostitutes, don't be indulgent with that thing. And they're going, can I eat the meat? And he says, okay, there's freedom and there's liberality. You can eat some things. But he's saying here, you have to watch what that freedom really means. Your freedom means you're allowed to do some things as long as what? Glorifies God. Doesn't make your brother stumble. Okay, glorify God doesn't make your brother stumble. So that's the metric that we need to look at when we do things. We sometimes think, well, it's my brother stumbling that Well, that's his problem. If it's his face not strong enough. That's on him. That is not the walk of a Christian. Maybe walk with somebody else. But if you're a Christ follower, we have to consider that because that's what Jesus did for us. That's everything, the whole principle is living for others. That's why we're still here. Why not die and go to heaven right away? Why are we still here? We're here for the benefit of others. God being glorified, changing us to make us more like Jesus, but also for the benefit of others. If you can get that, that we're here for the benefit of others, let that be your primary driving force. Could be some things of the family, but it's not here primarily for the indulgence of self. Because we're to die to that. So, he elaborates further in verses 15 to 22. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things with the Gentile sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, that's a lot there, and you're wondering, what is he actually talking about? Okay. When we join with Christ, when we're in the body together and we're doing it, everything we're doing is for the Lord. If you're out and, some, and you know there's meat sold and it happens to be fried or somebody told you after the fact it was used in the temple and you didn't know about it, that's not a problem. You can freely eat it. Now, you know about it and your brother's doing there it's an issue, you're not to eat it, because your freedom doesn't mean you're to make the a, a stumbling block to your brother. But if you go to a temple and you go to something, so I don't go to Hindu temples to eat. I was raised Hindu. My parents said some of that. I've been to some, even after as I profess Christ, but that's really something, not something I can partake. When I go to India, I don't go to Hindu temples to go in to partake in that, because that's food, that's sacrifice to idols. The same thing for us, the choice that we have, is when we go to some place and it's done for the exaltation of self and the idols of this world, and we engage in that part just to partake in it, that's not what he's telling us to do. Because when we do that, we're basically being adulterers to God. God wants all of our love and affection. God wants all of our love and affection. As we love him and he loves us, he loves through us to love others. So there's an abundance. When we love God wholly, his love overflows in and through us to be a blessing to others. To love others in a way that we really don't know what love is. And we'll talk about that when we get to 1 Corinthians 13. We don't really know what love is, but God's love flows through us to love others. Through the love of Christ, which is a far greater love than what any human can give When we can take hold of that and get the love of Christ in and through us, then we can really be a blessing. And so God's jealous. It says there, he's a jealous God. Why is he a jealous God? I thought he was good. Can a good God be jealous? Yes. Because he's jealous for righteousness. Because he's jealous for purity. Because he's jealous for real, sincere love. And he wants nothing less. He expects that and wants that. God didn't accept us to him that he takes us because we are sinners. God doesn't accept us because we are sinners. God accepts us in spite of the fact that we're sinners. Only by appropriating the blood of Christ, which watches us, when we adopt that within us and it watches us, can we be clean. So when God sees us, he sees Jesus. In each moment, when he sees us, he sees Jesus. Right now, when he looks at us, he sees Jesus. I don't know about you, but most of the time, I'm not that much like Jesus. But that's not how God sees us. Because of what Jesus did. Now, I want to be that. I want to be that what they see. God wants us to to esteem, to aspire to be like what God already sees us to be. To be the Jesus that he sees us to be. And so to love the way that Jesus said, to, to love him wholly. And so when we partake in idolatry and our idols are things of the world, it's harder for us. Because we go to certain countries, we go to India and I'll go there and they have idols, like real physical idols, like the stuff here in the Old Testament. I saw that in my mom's, in her little room that she would have, her sewing room, a little temple area, that she would pray two hours a day. Nodding and doing. I've seen people do that. But the idol we have to go is the things of the flesh. And that's where we have to go. What are those things the world esteems and values that are clearly not of God? That's an idol. If we chase after things to the world that are not of the word, that can become an idol, even for each of us. And God says, you have to flee the idols. Flee those things. Some of the things that you really want to. Some of it's our Electronic devices, I know if I do, we all do, we all look at that, you can't go into a room now without somebody on their devices, looking at things. The knowledge can be an that's a big one for me. Wanting to learn more and more about lots of different things, it's hard for me. to Surrender that one, that's a, I like that knowledge, need to know, want to know. Learning, I'll ask questions so I can learn. Those are things that God, you have to ask God to expose within your heart to say, hey, what am I to plead? How is this taking me away from my love and esteem of you? How am I being an adulterer to you? So, he's saying that idolatry that they did then physically was the demons, but really, when you look at it, the prince of this world is ruled by Satan, all the things that are... The kingdoms of this world are under his dominion. That's demons. So chasing some things of the world that we want to have can be of demons. You just have to be sensitive to that to know that. And how sometimes you may not be able to see it in yourself. Fortunately, we live in a good community where people will point out to you. I've had that done to me. Maybe when I don't always want to hear it, but that's okay. Because we need to hear it. Because I know it's done in love and we need to, to, to spur one another on to challenge one another to choose Jesus. So, it says, are we stronger than he? I'm like, which he is he talking about? We're talking about God. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus was very clear about where he did and didn't go. He went someplace, it was intentional. Intentional. It's not saying he didn't associate with people with tax collectors and did things. But it was clear he was not doing it just to have a good time. Eh, what well, is it's party? No. Very intentional. Very focused. I'm there to rescue sinking men. They're dying. It's not the healthy, it's the sick. They're dying. I'm there to rescue them. If we go with that attitude, yes, it's okay to do it. I'm going to go. I'm there to rescue them. Now, be smart, okay? Go the right place for yourself, so you don't stumble and fall. Know your own heart because it's so hard. It's so deceitful. Jeremiah 79, deceitful above all things. So, be smart about that. But look at your heart. Look at your motivation. And so, Paul's challenging them: What is your motivation? What's your drive? You know, the Corinthian church. Since since it's not really real, the idols not real. Does it really matter? They don't really exist. Only God exists, so it doesn't matter if I do that. No. We can sometimes minimize those things, saying it's not a big deal. That's what we tend to do. We minimize sin, we minimize those things, so they don't matter. Power, success. Ah, I know it's going to burn up, but hey, why will use it for the kingdom? Use it. We can justify and rationalize. It's still after chasing up self. So I love this other part that he says here in verse 23 and 24. Another good thing to remember if you want to remember from this one because it's loaded. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let one, no one seek his own, but each one the others will be. So, in Christ, you know, all the Old Testament admonitions and restrictions we're not bound by in the same way. We can eat a different kind of meat, we can choose different things. He's not bound by certain things you can't have. I love what says, not all things are beneficial, helpful or beneficial. Not all things are good. So, Leonard Ravenhill has quoted, you know, others can, I cannot. We have to look at, hey, what is it that's good? Just because I have the ability to doesn't mean I should. What's beneficial? What do we want to buy? We want to buy, especially those material things. Ah, huh, I can buy that. I can afford that. Yeah, I'll buy it. do guilty of that. And the challenge is, is that beneficial? Do we, do we use that standard when we engage and do certain things? I mean play games on the computer or on the phone. I've done that. Too much. Is it all beneficial? No. Sometimes it's okay for a break, sometimes not. Is it the best thing? No. God's saying, hey, what's the best? Now, we're not here under condemnation, so I don't want you to feel like just because you did something wrong, okay, you're a terrible person and that's it. You can't walk as a Christian. No. His mercies are new every day. Notice it and go, oh, I did that because I wanted to, not because Christ was the reason. Okay, God, help me to do think. I need you to help change my heart. I need you to help me. I'm going to do my part. You're going to do that part. Hey, what do I need to do next? Find out those things. If you find it's a recurrent pattern, what do you need to disrupt those things that you can make other choices? Maybe you need some mercy and help somebody else out. Maybe it's hanging on people you're uncomfortable doing because you know that if you're by yourself, you're not in a good space. Fathers who may be helping one of your kids with homework on something that you're not really great at. Who knows? Playing a game with somebody or helping them help you do your work when you know it takes three times longer having somebody help you do it than to do it by yourself. These are the challenges the Lord wants. And the question for us is, are we willing to take hold of that and press into that? So, all things are lawful, meaning, yes, we have permission. But it's not the best. What is the best? So, what are one of the things we can do to help us with the best is we can seek counsel. Yes, John. You had a question. Oh, edify means to build up. So Ephesians 4:25, to edify means to lift up, to build up, to strengthen. Encourage is a form of edification, a good form of edification. But it may be that I need to help you some other way to encourage. But encourage is a great another word that's been I've used. Has been encourage. But sometimes edify means I need to say things in a way that are hard. That may not sound very encouraging, but really make you stronger. In your faith, in your walk with Jesus. Okay? All things edify. So the whole principle that he's talking about, again and again in Scripture, about is what is our driving motivation. Everything that we've talked about from up here has always been Motivation. Where is our heart? We haven't heard a lot of that. I mean, since we life, yes, but I haven't heard that. Where is your heart? Where is your walk? What is driving what you do? Do you know what's going on internally? We mask it, we hit it, we, 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 we think, okay, because my actions are okay, it doesn't matter what's happening underneath. That is not true. What's happening underneath is critical. It's what God sees at each moment. It's what condemns us. Jesus said because you lusted, because you were angry, because your heart wasn't right. God sees all of that. So when you see condemnation, when you see judgment, we're sometimes seeing based on what we can see. I can only see your actions. I don't know what your heart is. Sometimes out of the heart the mouth speaks, it comes evident. But a lot of times I don't know. People do things, and we don't know how did that happen. What was going on with them? You hear all these people who fall, and you realize oh, it's not like it happened once. The whole thing was going on underneath the surface. All we saw was the tip of the iceberg. There's a heart issue, and if you guys don't deal with and address with that heart issue, and we don't deal with it in a way that's godly, surrendering, and it's encouraging and lifting one another. So when I speak with you, when you speak with me, we're trying to encourage one another in Christ to edify them. But the encouragement is not just in your own self-esteem. It's how to make us more like Jesus. Because that's all that really counts. That's all that will count. That's how God is most glorified. He's given us a clear playbook. Walk as I walk. Be like me. Think the way that I think. Act the way that I act based on thinking the way that I think. To act the way that I act without thinking the way that I think is what? Phariseeism. Huh? Yeah, it's being a Pharisee. It's a behavioral modification. It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. A hypocrite in the true sense of the Greek word which means as an actor. Being on stage like those actors and you think, sometimes we think, you know, That's who they are. That's not who they are. I like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. She's nothing like that. She's nothing like Maria in The Sound of Music. Okay? That's not who they are. Who are we? Do we have a different face? I've had that. Different face to different people. Are we the same, consistent? Somebody said this really well about John Wayne, the actor. John Wayne was John Wayne in every movie he played. You knew it was John Wayne. Others couldn't adapt and you couldn't tell. They, they got right into the role. Olivia could do that, some of those things. But John Wayne was John Wayne. You knew in every movie he was in, he was John Wayne. I see a little bit of like that with Clint Eastwood. But Clint Eastwood for me is like Clint Eastwood. The grim, gritty look and everything that he played. God wants us to be consistent in everything that we do. So, the question isn't what's the harm to me to doing that? It's not that bad. It's just a little bit. It's okay. The question should be what good is it for me to do it? So, He's talking them all through this, even though they have freedom, even though they have rights, that their rights are really secondary. It's not about our rights. I have a right to this. I have a right to that. Those of us who've gone through like in pure life, you realize, yeah, rights don't really matter that much. One thing they're teaching you over and over again is to go low. What that really means is, humble yourself, so that what your thoughts and your will and your rights are are not the primary motivator. The question for us afterwards, now that we have that, it's a challenge. When we get out, we think, "Okay, I'm free now. I can do what I want." We have to have the right wants, and what God's giving us a chance in the Word is have the wants that He wants. And if we have the right wants, if our heart is right will be richly rewarded here and in heaven. It's not even about the actions. The actions will flow out of the right heart. Where's the right heart? You may have the right heart and just be, you know, washing dishes like Brother Lawrence did. Not get to do where things are and then your words are written down. You may be a tent maker and going around to different places like Paul did. May not be able to do a lot. He said, "You know, I baptized a few of you, House of Stephanas, a few people at the beginning of First First Corinthians chapter one. He didn't say I didn't do a lot of that. It's not about the productivity. It's about the relationship." Okay. So the last part here: Eat whatever sold in the meat market, asking no questions for consciousness' sake. For conscious sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, hey, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food for which I give thanks? He's elaborating further what we just talked about already. He's basically saying, if you don't know and you eat, it's okay. Because you are acting with the right heart. But if you know, then don't eat. Not just because you can still eat. He's saying, technically, yes, you know where it is you can eat, but you don't want to do it if he says it's been offered to idols because you don't want to make sure that it's a stumbling block for them. So if you have something and they happen to use an alcohol to flambé it and there's alcohol in it and you didn't know and you ate it, that's not wrong. But if he says, hey, we put booze in that thing, I don't need it, it's a stumbling block. That's a practical example for now. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, I have not No. Because that could make the person stumble. That's the point he's saying is you have freedom and conscience, but where's your heart with it? What's your motivation? Is your own self gratification or the benefit of others and the glory of God? So we talked about a few points, the whole thing, and we'll get more into it next week a little bit in 1 Corinthians 11. But the whole point that Paul's telling the Corinthian church is your attention and focus be for the glory of God and benefit of others. You have freedoms, but always ask yourself the question is this the best thing for me or not? Is this the best for others around me? Does this bring the the greatest glory to God? If you can use that as your litmus test, as your measuring mark, that'll help you with a lot to guide you in whatever you decide to do, whatever career you decide to go in whatever purchase that you decide to make. Most of us do it reflexively. Go ahead. There you go. Whatever you do, do it all for the of God. Okay? And so that's our motivation, but whatever we do is not just action without the heart, please don't say that's a problem. we can be caught up in Phariseeism Examine your heart. What is your motivation? If I do it for God it's because it's the right thing to do underneath it's not good if it's not with the right motivation. That's where people stumble and falls where we do. Okay, let's uh, close it. Uh, any any questions i know we're copper time we started a bit a little bit late but any questions